Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson from Dallas, Texas. This is Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. And this is Lise Van Boxel at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Today we're doing a pretty short reading, um, which might turn into a short podcast, uh, or might not, who knows. Uh, but we're doing Sigmund Freud's On Transience. Lise is going to give us a brief summary and start us off with an opening question. Okay, so Freud wrote On Transience in 1915, um, and he was about 59, and apparently he had... Uh, predicted that he was going to die at 61. So for whatever reason, he thinks his own death is proximate. I don't know if that actually happened. I suspect not. Um, and he's taking a walk with two younger people, um, one of whom he characterizes as a taciturn friend and the other one as a young but already famous poet. Now, as it turns out, the taciturn friend is Lou Salome, um, who's famous amongst other things for being, like I said, quite a lot of impressive lovers, but um, she, she was a love interest of Friedrich Nietzsche's, among us, amongst others. Um, and the already famous poet is Rilke. So um, as they're walking, it looks like the two companions have some objection to the transience of natural things. Um, and he characterizes uh, Salome's response to the transits of all things as, sort of, as a sort of rebellion against the fact, claims that he can't address that and it's sort of a wish, it's wishful thinking, it sets it aside, and then addresses the young poet and makes the argument, well, I guess uh, in our discussion we're going to trace um, the way the argument develops, but at least begins by saying that transients actually um, makes things more valuable. So, uh, my question is whether he actually addresses the deepest versions of the objections to transients that the two companions state. And if we could also say, um, if he does do this, how so? So maybe a place to begin, because it's a short piece, is just by reading a little bit of an introduction, um, since, we, since we have that opportunity, as it is short, and that'll allow us to then determine the extent to which we think, or at least it'll set us up to determine whether we think he answers them. So, sorry, Jeff, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I'd be happy to read if you tell me what you'd like to hear. Yeah. Um, why don't we just start with, um, well, actually, you know, it's so short. Why don't we just read the first three paragraphs? Okay, here you go. Not long ago, I went on a summer walk through a smiling countryside in the company of a taciturn friend and of a young but already famous poet. The poet admired the beauty of the scene around us, but felt no joy in it. He was disturbed by the thought that all this beauty was fated to extinction, that it would vanish when winter came, like all human beauty, and all the beauty and splendor that men have created or may create. All that he would otherwise have loved and admired seemed to him to be shorn of its worth by the transience which was its doom. The proneness to decay of all that is beautiful and perfect can, as we know, give rise to two different impulses in the mind. The one leads to the aching despondency felt by the young poet, while the other leads to rebellion against the fact asserted. No, it is impossible that all this loveliness of nature and art, 
of the world, our sensations, and of the world outside, world of our sensations, and of the world outside, will really fade away into nothing. It would be too senseless and too presumptuous to believe it. Somehow or other, this loveliness must be able to persist and to escape all the powers of destruction. But this demand for immortality is a product of our wishes too unmistakable to lay claim to reality. What is painful may nonetheless be true. I could not see my way to dispute the transience of all things, nor could I insist upon an exception in favor of what is beautiful and perfect. But I did dispute the pessimistic poet's view that the transience of what is beautiful involves any loss in its worth. Okay, thank you. And then he begins, On the contrary, an increase, transience value is is scarcity value in time. So that's what he begins with, an economic argument. Yeah, and and I have to say that... um, Economic arguments make sense to me on the basis of economic assumptions, right? So the more scarce something is, the more value it has, presuming the same uh, demand for it. But um, I'm not sure that the economic assumptions apply here. In other words, it seems to me just a too, too narrow an approach to what we think about beautiful things and what we hope for from them. So I wondered whether um, we thought that uh, our experience of beautiful things always includes the hope that they will last forever. Does that seem true to us? I'm kind of reminded of the beginning of the Phaedo, right? Where uh, Socrates, you know, is, is, is he in chains in the beginning of that and removes the chains or he's just uh, curled up on, yeah, he's, he's in, in chains. chains. Yeah, and he takes the chains off and he his legs feel good. And so he can't feel this pleasure, right, without without the preceding pain. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like that there's something in what Socrates points to there with this. There to to enjoy the summer or to enjoy the flower that only blooms for a night, you have to either have the pain of winter, the cold and bitterness, or you have to have the flower not blooming. Otherwise, it's not as enjoyable. So the, you know, the absence of transience is something eternal. But if you have something eternal, then it's constant. There's no variance in it. And so even being able to subjectively distinguish between A and B, right, you need a difference. You need some kind of change. Okay, so you've already... Um, Sorry, Brian, I thought you were done. No, go ahead. Yeah. You, you've gotten us into some yep. deep water. Now I'm seeing a problem, I think, in, in um, maybe my assumption about the text and what you just said. Um, you know, it ends with a, with a reflection on the war, but I would have thought the most immediate way in which one is sad about evanescence is people die. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, Brian, what you said, if that's right, but it's, it complicates it in the following way. Um, we are beings that seem to want and need motion because I would argue that we are types of motion. We're a kind of motion. So to that extent, yes, I do want transience because stasis actually is death. But I don't think that alone reconciles me to non-existence of either myself or my loved ones, etc. Mm-hmm. So, 
I'm sorry, go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to say, Brian, it, it did sound to me like what you were saying was a kind of agreement with Freud, right? That if the, the pain of uh, thinking that something is transient necessarily comes along with the pleasure of its beauty, uh, then maybe there is a necessary connection between the two things, right? And that somehow the experience of beauty without this experience of transience would be less, right? And so this is, I guess, is the thing we have to try to sort out is to what extent are we, um, as beings that are in motion, invested in the changing character of the things that we perceive? And to what extent are we uh, attached to their persistent character, right? Because it looks like each of those two aspects makes some kind of valuable contribution to our sense of the things around us, and, you know, in particular, their beauty. You know, I'm kind of coming back to this, the, the, the idea of, of pleasure and pain, right? Like it's, it, there, there's a certain, you know, if we're making this value judgment or not value judgment, economic judgment, transient, transience value is scarcity value and time, right? Mm -hmm. So for us to be able to appreciate something, it needs to be scarce, and so we can't really appreciate beauty without ugliness or, I mean, it's just like, you know, if you have, you know, a painting that's black on black, you can't really appreciate the difference, right? You need, you need, you need some difference that's visible, that's tangible, that's measurable somehow in order to even notice anything, right? And in the human experience, it's, you know, it's pleasure and pain, right? And so you have, I think, certain types that, appreciate that you know the poet not necessarily being one of them captain james t kirk being one of them i always he's it's a wonderful touch base for me i forget which star trek movie you're laughing jeff so you might remember which star trek movie where he's yelling at spock's brother and he's like i want my pain i need my pain oh, right yeah you've lost great, me there already <laughs> okay it's a great philosophical moment yeah. um but but you can't have one without the other and especially how it ties into war you know I'm, i don't want to jump too far ahead even though it's all of two pages, but it's, you know, can you appreciate all the joys of peace without, you know, either experiencing or seeing the horrors of war? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot, a lot there. Let's go through the details because Brian, I, um, difference I grant, I don't know that that resolves into say, in order to appreciate beauty, I have to have ugliness. Um, and I don't know if we can answer that in the text, but, um, like you just made me think of an experience I had once where um, I was in a club. This was I was at a club and um, was in the restroom. And normally you see all the women are sort of like trying to put themselves back together or like do, do very restoration work, etc. And everybody in there was beautiful. And I have to tell you, it was not an unpleasant experience to see all these beautiful people, nor did I think, gee, I can't tell if they're beautiful because I have no ugliness present. They were different. It was like like looking at different flowers, but but they were all lovely. Um, so I don't I don't know. I'd have to press a bit more on that. Um, but maybe the way to do that to start is just watch the way he transitions. Tell me what you think of whether or not this, these are rational moves. And I'm just looking on the first page just below where we left off. So he claims what this um, phrase we've been repeating and, and reviewing transient value is scarcity and value in time and then about an inch down on our sheets he says the beauty of the human form and face vanished forever in the course of our own lives but their evanescence only lends them a fresh charm and then we get the flower 
A flower that blossoms only for a single night does not seem to us on that account less lovely. Now, I'm a little suspicious of the course of the reasoning there. <laughs> that is uh, transient value, scarcity value, and time. I could see going the way Brian did, and I think that's maybe the most interesting and most difficult way. That is that I'm a being in motion, and so to live, I need to experience motion. But the move from that to um, beauty of fate of the human form declines. But guess what? That's charming. I think I need a little mm-hmm. more convincing of that. I don't think that's how most people feel when their bodies are and faces are declining. Um, mm-hmm. And then the third claim, you know, the rose is not diminished in any way by the fact that it doesn't last. Okay, but uh, but was that the point? Right, that, right, and that that last sentence is especially suspicious because by the argument he's made thus far, the flower that blossoms only for a single night should be more lovely, or at least more right. valuable, right? And right. so it looks like he is somewhat retracting what he had the the opening position he had adopted. Right. So in other words, if I if I am not anticipating, uh, and I have a beautiful rose, but it's a cut flower, and I know it's not going to last. True, I, I don't think the fact that it doesn't last has any effect on its current beauty, or doesn't have to. Um, but, uh, that's not really, it's not clear to me that that's what his two companions are complaining about that, you know, that it's necessarily the case that, um, because I know the rose is going to last, not going to last, that it spoils my experience of the rose while it's living. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't think that's the claim. Can we, can we try to tie in libido into this? Because I think that's one of the things that from a value perspective or from a constant versus variance perspective is important in understanding his argument. Um, you know, he says about a page after the, the flower, we possess, as it seems, a certain amount of capacity for love, what we call libido, which in the early, earliest stages of development is directed towards our own ego. Later, though still at a very early time, this libido is di- diverted from the ego onto objects, which are thus, in a sense, taken into our ego. If the objects are destroyed or if they are lost to us, our capacity for love, our libido, is once more liberated. And it can then either take other objects instead or can temporarily return to the ego. And he asked a question there, but, but why, it, why, why it is that this detachment of libido from its object should be such a painful process is a mystery to us, and we have not hitherto been able to frame any hypothesis to account for it. We only see that libido clings to its objects and will not renounce those that are lost, even when a substitute lies ready at hand. Such then is mourning. And so the, the, the claim there is that mourning is the delta between shift in libido, mm-hmm. right? That something that you loved is lost and you haven't changed the object of your love either back to yourself or to some other object. And so it seems like though that what he's kind of implying there is libido is a constant, mm-hmm. that love is a constant, right? So the things around us change and we change, but our libido is relatively the same. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, kind of a tricky proposition too, right? Because, you know, we love sick teenagers, right? Love sick youths. You know, this is something that shows up in literature and philosophy and everything else, right? It's like when you hit puberty and you're kind of like, you know, becoming an adult, you fall in love with a million different things around you, right? And then when you're old and, you know, crotchety like me, it's not not as, not as frequent, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the, but there is some kind of, 
I'll, I'll use the word subjective again. There's some kind of subjective quasi-constant in libido, though everything around you is changing. So I guess what I'm asking is when he talks about scarcity and transience, I guess, well, I guess, I guess I can just ask simply because I still don't understand is how do we tie libido into that, into that idea of transience and that idea of scarcity? Well, my impression was that the concept of libido only came up because he thought there was no rational account um, for why um, we feel bad about the transience of beautiful things. And so he needed this additional hypothesis in order to explain that. And so if we had a different account of why people might uh, feel bad about the transience of beautiful things, we might be spared from the need to have recourse to libido. And uh, I find the, the libido account very puzzling for exactly the reasons that you lay out, Brian. He does say if you get old, you have less of it. But in general, uh, it's a fixed quantity. It seems entirely... Um, free to be allocated as you see fit regardless of the nature of the objects but it seems sticky in the sense that once you allocate it it's hard to withdraw it and i think all of those uh claims about libido would have to be investigated and and weighed and i'd be happy to push on that do do we think we've said what we what we want to say about the first part of it before he introduces libido namely uh do we agree that there is no um, rational account for why we might find transience uh, to be disappointing. I, I don't, and I, I think we should go back to libido, but I thought he dismisses the question that you asked earlier, Jeff, which was exactly that question. Why, why do we, what is revealed about the human being in our attachment to things on our morning when we lose them or the sense that they're transient? And he basically just, he says, in the section Brian was looking at, which obviously I don't, I don't want to be dismissive, but um, he at least starts there and says, well, you know, we don't really know. We know that it happens. We don't know why it happens. But mm -hmm. um, as we've talked about in the pod before, you know, certainly the, uh, he's, he's not, uh, all kinds of other great thinkers are very interested in trying to have a rational account by which I, and I don't think uh, by rational account, we mean um, somebody who doesn't have a heart, but rather just that it's intelligible mm -hmm. to us. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, my impression, I'll just speak generally about pleasant experiences. Uh, my impression is however uh, the experiences might be linked to a prior pain in the way that Brian's citation of the Fido um, uh, raised. Uh, if I am told during the pleasure that it must end soon, uh, especially if I didn't know that beforehand, that's a disappointment to me. And so I wonder whether there isn't something just in the experience of pleasure, and maybe beauty is a subset of pleasant experiences, um, there isn't some kind of suspension or uh, hope for a suspension of my temporal moving character, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Jeff, Jeff uh, as we were talking before the podcast, you and I both worked a little bit on the transhumanism problem. Let me see, given that, if, if you would accept this tweak, um, which I think is consistent with what I was saying earlier on. In that same experience, I think I too would, um, my, my pleasure would be lessened by the fact that I know it's going to end. But I don't think when I press on that, that that means I object to stasis, uh, uh, that I want to be a static being. In other words, uh, let's look at my, my life, say, or human being's life. Um, 
I think if I'm having a good life, which means I'm growing and thriving, I would like that to continue as growing and thriving. So again, to, to Brian's earlier point, there's a kind of motion there, but it's not the same as the termination of my being, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I agree with that. It's uh, It comes up, for example, in Solon's claim about judge no one happy till they're dead, right? If right. at the peak of pleasure, somebody offered to kill you at that moment so that you would never have to deal with uh, decline of the pleasure or any other kind of decline, I don't think you would accept. I think that's right, that the, yeah. whatever suspension is being envisioned, it's a kind of, um, I don't know, a continual turning of the wheel, right? Yeah. Uh, a perpetuation of your activity in something like the state that it's in, but also moving, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So to use, um, so certain readers uh, maybe even the typical reading of, say, Plato's Socrates is something like, um, or, or Diotima in Plato's Symposium, yes, the experience of beauty um, gives us longings of immortality, right, that we don't want to be mortal mm-hmm. beings. And then a, a, a person like Nietzsche comes along and says sort of what I just summarized before, okay, but uh, I'm not objecting to my... Uh, um, the fact that I'm a moving being, but I am objecting to the determination of what I am, or I could object to it. He leaves open that possibility. So I think those two things get conflated. It's like, well, you are you are a being that's in motion, therefore you must end. So, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can I just go back to something we said earlier, uh, really at the beginning, least with your question, which was uh, you asked whether um, Freud really did justice to the two objections. And the objection of the taciturn friend who uh, we're saying is Lou Salome is uh, hard to understand because of her taciturnity, right? She doesn't voice it, he does. And I just wonder whether her objection isn't something like what we've just said now, right? So Freud encounters and tries to deal with Rilke's objection, but Lou Salome's objection is unaddressed um, because he himself takes it on himself to claim that she's just negating, just saying no, and that might not entirely be true. Yeah. And that is wishful thinking. Well, by just saying no, yeah. By just saying no, don't you avoid the pain of mourning, right? By, By being taciturn, you close yourself off from mourning, which potentially closes you off from love, but if you're trying to avoid the pain that goes along with mourning, then being taciturn is a fairly good pitch, right? Yeah, that's interesting. So, so you think that um, the turn to treating mourning is really a concentration on whatever Rilke's objection is, right? And there's no sign that Lou Salome is, is really mourning uh, uh, the loss of the objects of, of her libido, right? Maybe Freud doesn't really know what's going on with her. Uh, but he thinks he knows what's going on with Rilke and uh, has to introduce this theory of the libido, which we could turn to now if we wanted Can to. Can I just, just flag something before we turn, Jeff? You, you opened up a possibility for me that maybe is more interesting than, than the way I was initially reading it. Namely, um, he explicitly dismisses Lou Salome as just sort of like wishful thinking, which I take for Freud, that's sort of a loaded term, right? That she's like sort of somehow just out of, out of touch with how things are. Um, and there I think one could press and say, are you, are you really so sure that, that, uh, one couldn't overcome death the way he assumes one cannot. But Mm -hmm. I thought the possibility you raised was one might ask in terms of a piece of literature, if he's so dismissive of her, why include her at all? 
mm-hmm. since since so much, the rest of a very short piece is dedicated to Rilke. So maybe we are supposed to be a little suspicious or at any rate be open to the possibility that something's going on that's not quite so obvious. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm even disappointed, or disappointed is the wrong word. I, I find it hard to see where in that second paragraph um, that that we read together at the beginning, uh, where Salome's position is really engaged with. Um, we we hear that the other, right, and that presumably is her, leads to rebellion against the fact asserted. But uh, the wish that's mentioned in the third paragraph, I'm not sure whether that's Rilke's or Salome's, and gradually it's entirely Rilke's view that's, uh, that's being engaged with. So I just don't know where exactly she drops off in Freud's account. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I was flagging that, which isn't to say I, I'm, I'm wedded to this. That last um, sentence of what we read, um, somehow or other, this loveliness must be able to persist and to escape all the powers of destruction. So if I were talking to that person, which I'm inclined to think is, is Lou Salome, the other, the second person, I'm, I might press on that and say, well, why would you think that? And so he says, well, that looks like a wish, but is there a logos to, or a, does she have a rational account of why she thinks that something that lovely must have a power of, of its own that is more powerful than the power of destruction? I mean, I think that's worth investigating, and he, and he doesn't mm-hmm. explicitly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's one place where it um, seems to me he shows his hand a little bit. Um, This is in the end of the paragraph before the one that begins, these considerations appeared to me incontestable. Uh, He says, um, Since the value of all this beauty and perfection is determined only by its significance for our own emotional lives, it has no need to survive us and is therefore independent of absolute duration. I think you could insist that beauty and perfection is relative to us without also insisting that its significance is only determined by its relation to our emotional lives. Yes. Right? Something like that. Yeah. Yes. So then we get, um, to go back to where Brian, the point Brian brought us to, I think we get some technical terms here, and I'm I'm not terribly familiar with Freud, but I take it the libido is in this sort of unconscious or more primordial part of the human being. Um, and then he moves to saying, well, that part is sort of constant. The consciousness is, uh, consciousness is what moves around. And um, in order for the consciousness to sort of locate its love in other things, one has to go through a sort of process of mourning. So it ends up being a kind of... Uh, Mechanical is too strong, but there's a, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's an aspiration toward the rigor of something like physics, right? Where there's a quantity yeah. that needs to be conserved, yeah. right? And can be moved around, maybe in accordance with certain laws. Um, but uh, here, here's something that puzzles me, and if either of you has any ideas, it would be really helpful. Um, apparently, we start with our libido um, directed towards ourselves, our ego, Right, which might be a part of ourselves, and that later we divert it to objects. Um, does that cause mourning, or does it not cause mourning because the ego is not lost? Hmm. Right. In other words, is it the detachment of libido or the uh, perishing of the object of libido that causes mourning? I thought that he meant it was the the object itself perishing. Right. Um, 
Now that there, there's flaws in that theory or in that hypothesis as well, right? Like you might just fall out of love with something. Yeah. You might see something and be in love with it. And then it's transience, just it's, you know, existence over time. Um, something changes there. Right. And I, I, I also, I liked, you know, bringing physics into this because it, it seems like, you know, the way that you measure libido is not in and of itself. It's on its effect uh, on other things, including yourself, mm-hmm. right? So this is, you know, something like gravity, where you can't be like, you can't hold something in your hand and say, this is gravity. You just have to say, this is some kind of force, and I can look at the things in the universe and see how that force affects things, mm-hmm. and I can measure its intensity by, you know, looking at these other objects, right, or by observing these other objects. And so it seems like libido is something like that. Let me just interject: the the uh, mention of gravity seems to me entirely apropos because he practically quotes Newton. We have not hitherto been able to frame any hypotheses, right? Hypothesis non fingo is the famous line about gravity in the Principia, right? I shall frame no hypotheses. So it looks like he is thinking of something like, I should be the Newton of the moral world or the psychic world, right, by discovering this quantity. So let's just fill in a space. Yeah, so we're back to the economic language, which... I think it helps to make sense of it. But he gives these accounts that we spoke about, human face and form decay, but you know, you still like the cut flower even though it dies. And then he, he does something sort of interesting as a transition into the discussion of libido. He realizes that nothing he said about these things have convinced his two companions at all. It has zero effect. <laughs> and he concludes from that, I'll just read it. He says, my failure led me to infer that some powerful emotional factor was at work, which was disturbing their judgment. And I believed later that I had discovered what it was. What spoiled their enjoyment of beauty must have been a revolt in their minds against mourning. The idea that all this beauty was transient was giving these two sensitive minds a foretaste of mourning over its decease. And since the mind is instinct, since the mind instinctively recoils from anything that is painful, they felt their enjoyment of beauty interfered with by thoughts of its transience. So that's his transition, right? I couldn't convince them, what's the reason? Well, it's this deeper thing that they maybe aren't acknowledging, that is they're resisting mourning, and that, um, and that mourning is permeating their experience of beauty. Every time they see beauty, they, they fear mourning. And that's, it's helpful that uh, you've pointed out a distinction, Lise. He's not saying that they are experiencing mourning. Right, in other words, he's not saying that their libido has been detached from some object that's perished. He's saying they're anticipating that experience, and that's why their uh, stance on beauty is irrational. <laughs> right. I'm wondering if we can you know, discuss briefly the concept of, of war in here, because something that I think, you know, or another kind of potential issue in his um, hypothesis is... To a degree, there is no transience in war, right? Mm-hmm. So let me let me explain that. Like in war, you are purely in the moment, right? And there are you know even when there is death or destruction or anything else, like there's not really an experience of time. And so, and I'm just postulating this to a degree, but I think it would be backed up by 
a decent amount of sources. Um, but you know, he what he lays out is you know right after when he you know such then as morning he says my com- my conversation with the poet took place in the summer before the war. A year later, the war broke out and robbed the world of its beauties. It destroyed not only the beauty of the countrysides through which it passed and the works of art which it met with on its path, but it also shattered our pride in the achievements of our civilization, our admiration for many philosophers and artists, and our hopes of a final triumph over the differences between nations and races. This is a view of war outside of war, right? So it's it, it's another kind of interesting drawing a system boundary kind of thing on what we're going to measure as far as the experiment. Outside of war is the is the view that we're looking at this through not inside of war but it's also interesting that i and and it 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 might be backed up in that you know your your emotional um or the the amount of change in your emotional being and your in your libido shall we say is somewhat static in war and it's almost like uh, stored somewhere else you know Mm mm-hmm it's it's like you have a separate container where all your emotions go and then once you are outside of that system boundary and outside of that war it's all kind of released at once mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so you're you're fine for however long you're in combat mostly and then as soon as you're out of it you're you're back in kind of a society that understands um life and death and beauty and ugliness in a different way and all of that libido is kind of released and maybe all that mourning as well. So all those forces that are kind of would pull at your psyche are kind of stored away and then you experience them again, like outside of war. So I guess that's all to say, I don't know if I can put a question after that. <laughs> that's, that's a, that was a pretty declarative statement, yeah. which is bad, by the way. Well, don't do no, that. No, no, no. Let, let's, let's just take a step back here for a second, because um, I, I think I see what you're driving at. And I just wondered um, how it was mapping on to what looks like um, Freud's chief concern here, which seems to be that um, war uh, causes mourning by destroying the beautiful things to which we're attached, Right. Um, so it sounds like um, for you, war would uh, suspend the experience of mourning while you're in combat, right? And when you're outside mm-hmm. of combat, then the question arises, has my libido been displaced or not, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a kind of suspension, which would make the actual engagement with war um, kind of a freeing experience, I would imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he might not disagree with that, but I think he sees from the perspective of uh, war having uh, occurred and being over um, that it often destroys the things to which our libido is attached, right? And that mm-hmm. looks like um, that points toward a hope that war might itself be transient, right? That there might be no more war, whereas your position might um, be consistent with the thought that war is a um, natural feature of human events and might even have something appealing about it. Um, well, there's, I mean, there's certainly something appealing about going and doing it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, there's, there's enough people that voluntarily go, yes, I want to go get into combat, and it was certainly... Um, you know, something that was a a very key driver in me joining the military. 
was wanting to do that. And I still don't understand that. Um, you know, this, this will come out after, um, my, my podcast with Ann, which Jeff and Lisa haven't heard yet cause we haven't published it. Um, but you know, we, Ann and I talked a little bit about this is like, you know, why, why the drive to go do that? It doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's, I don't know that that's potentially a separate conversation. I mean, as it stands right now with Freud and with, with his kind of conception of war and, I, I I do appreciate the fact that he 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 brings it up within this kind of construct of nature, right? Of the natural kind of like winter and summer and seasons and blooming and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I as I was mentioning to you guys before the pod of, you know, the the fire in um, Dostoevsky's Demons. Um, you know, that the, the fire was to a degree an allegory of, um, you know, burning down a, you know, corrupt society and potentially rebuilding this kind of utopia. Um, and, you know, perhaps that is a concept behind war, that war is like a forest fire and that, you know, the society that comes out of war will be more anti-fragile, uh, stronger than the society that went in. I don't know if that's the case. I kind of doubt that it is. But there might be some kind of natural propensity to view it in that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm soliloquizing a lot today instead of asking questions. Well, bad, bad, bad seminar form. Let, let me ask uh, this question then: Do, do we think that um, Freud hopes that um, wars will cease, or do we think that his model for war is something like Brian was just suggesting, the model of nature, where war happens periodically the way winter happens periodically? My sense was the latter. I'm just trying to track some of the details here. That, um, And I'm also interested in the transition. You know, we went from something very personal, which I thought might have begun with one's own tr- transience, one's own mortality, but it's immediately about actually the mortality of objects of our of our love or other 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 people, I think initially, and then we get mm-hmm. this motion to well, the reason I'm not convincing these two companions is because they're they're afraid of mourning, and that's permeating their experience of beauty. Um, mm-hmm. A brief account of the libido, and then this odd move to war. At the time we were talking, you know, w- war had broken out, and, and there had been all this destruction. I guess just to sum up what the the train of thought is, see if you agree, is as follows, that all this destruction happened, which produced two things at least. One, it made people more attached to what remained, what hadn't been destroyed, Mm -hmm. um, and maybe overly attached um, to what hadn't been destroyed in a a way that, um, yeah, was sort of clinging onto it is the way he puts it. Um, And that this... uh, not moving through morning, maybe that's why I'll put it, prevents a renewal. And that is very mm-hmm. much a sort of winter-spring image, right? Mm-hmm. So that, so that yes, one has to realize that things don't last. Even great works of art don't last forever. Um, but when you see some get destroyed, don't hang on to the ones that remain in such a way that prevents you from regenerating, if I could use that word. Yeah, is right, that this, right. Yeah. It looks like... The things that were lost were, if I can give a loose um, term for them, kind of cosmopolitan in nature. Yeah. And the things that have uh, persisted are national, right? And so it looks like he, he might be worried about jingoism or nationalism or something like that, partly, right? 
But it is interesting to me that part of the cosmopolitan aspiration looks like, um, you know, it involves uh, universal peace or something along those lines. And I just don't see, I I think, I think we're right in what we, um, in what we said just now about the cyclical uh, implications of what Freud is saying. And so it's hard for me to see how they fit together, right? Our hopes for, of a final triumph over the differences between nations and races, Right. Uh, those are the things that he's hoping will be reborn. But maybe those are necessarily an illusion. And so I'm thinking of this in the context of Brian bringing up the war image. And um, so the plot of the piece, if you will. And I'm wondering why he moves from what would be the more immediate personal urgent account, loss of friends and lovers, to loss of artworks, loss of buildings, etc. Maybe I'll throw this one to Brian. Do you think that is because... Um, it's much easier after someone, say, has left war and reflected back on on the, some of the damage that was done. It's one thing to talk about having lost the buildings. It's maybe a much more complicated thing to talk about loss of loved ones. Yeah, I mean, it's also more, I don't know, you know the the imagery that that sometimes sticks with me from you know my deployments are you know the the um, I guess this is strange to say but some of the some of the faces some of the people that I know that died during war mm-hmm. don't the feeling that I have for them is more profound but the imagery that sticks with me is the tangible destruction right like I, I vividly recollect being in, you know, Sarajevo and Mostar, um, and in Iraq and, you know, especially Sarajevo and Mostar where, you know, there were just whole buildings just riddled with bullets, you know, like that literally it seemed like a platoon of people had just stood 30 feet away and just emptied magazine after magazine into buildings. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I think that maybe like my, my psyche uh, associates war with that destruction, that, hmm. that visual, tangible destruction where I can pick up those loose bricks, I see. where I can see the bullet holes, whereas, you know, the, the human form is, is temporal in nature. And, you know, the only thing that remains of the people that I know that were killed is, is just their memory, you know? So I, I think that when you're trying to describe, you know, the destruction of war, that, it, it, it almost, destruction of things almost suits it better than destruction of people to a degree. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but just, you know, in trying to relate to it in a, in a more tangible way, destruction of things seems to be like in the forefront of one's mind, even though from a value perspective, it certainly shouldn't be. That gives me all kinds of questions. I guess I, can we try and... Well, let's assume as a starting point that Freud is very thoughtful about the construction of the piece. It may not be the the case, but we always try and start there because you learn more. So if that's the case, then let's see if we could fold Brian's experience of what he just shared into the plot. That is, I guess, uh, one possibility is it actually is the personal that's bothering these two people. But um, uh, the way to get at that is to talk about mourning with respect to these, uh, to buildings and artwork and stuff. Um, maybe because it's a more obvious manifestation of war, which is a more obvious manifestation of 
uh, transience or destruction that you think you could stop, right? Whereas, as Brian said, you don't at this point assume that you could stop people from dying, right? Uh, people get old, if, if nothing else. Um, that would be one possibility. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that Freud might grant um, Brian's view as a beginning point, right? The ser- series he goes through, the sequence he goes through is beauty of countryside, works of art, achievements of our civilization, which seem to be ultimately ideas for him. And so it looks like a a move from the visual to the abstract or something like that, natural visual beauty to man-made visual beauty to abstract notions. And uh, so maybe he thinks that you have to begin where Brian began, but somehow the, the real issue is in the invisible... Uh, ideas and whether they're endorsed or undermined by the experience of transience. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with him, but it agrees with the general cerebral tone of the piece, which is there should be a rational account for this, but uh, if not, we have to recur to libido. And then the effort to try and promote hopefulness through this renewal, but of course... um, it's less clear how one would do that, say if you lost a loved one, you know, renewal is not going to look like the resurrection of that person. Maybe you move on, find somebody else, or, or or treasure the memories and do something else. But it's not going to be that. But it looks like with respect to these, as Jeff, as you put it, these uh, more abstract things, art, et cetera, science, um, that those things can uh, be renewed, right? They right the particularity. Yeah. Well, and they yeah. should be. They should be permanent, right? That that some of these abstract notions are are universal and constant and so just the fact that they are kind of either temporarily put on hold um or uh, subsumed into you know a, a, a philosophy inherently wrong um then you know that's the kind of potential destruction he's or conservation that he's talking about yeah it just seems to me that on one hand we have this claim that uh the objects will be replaced by fresh ones equally or still more precious and that seems like ideas right and on the other hand we've got something like uh lear crying over cordelia's body right never 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 right five times he says never right it nothing will ever come to replace that and it's that's a this is a gulf in this piece that i have great difficulty bridging me too yeah this is this is kind of the this is this is the beauty of freud though right it's like you talk to any psychiatrist and they're just like no we don't we don't really use him anymore but just seems to be super useful in the philosophical like exploration of these concepts of individuality and kind of our shared experience, but it it might be just because he's very good at imagery, right? Mm -hmm. That you can kind of read a lot of things into kind of how he describes it because he kind of comes up with words for stuff and kind of defines words. And it's hard to pick those apart because they're not things that you can smell, touch, taste, right? They are they are forces. You uh, certainly made me think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, anyway, I guess this is a, a good point to stop. We you know went went pretty much our full uh, normal usual time on all of about you know four pages or five pages of text. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. it's a non transient podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, well, uh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Lise. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Brian. All right, and we will uh, see you next time for Racine's Phaedra. Actually, know what we're reading next time. That's that's a nice little change of pace. Yeah, yeah. Um, so teaser. Oh, how'd the uh, how'd the seminar go? And is that going to be online yet, uh, Jeff? Your your lecture? Oh yeah, I, I, you did the lecture. I, I right? did the lecture. It went well. I don't know if it's online yet, but least least okay, was a well, wonderful host in Santa Fe, and I can hardly wait to come back. It was great to see you. Yeah. Great. Well, we'll. Uh, We'll try to find that as soon as it gets published, and we'll put it on our uh, our Facebook page for all of our listeners. Great. And I look forward to listening to it. Yeah, it's great. Good. good. Yeah. Bye bye. Right. Thanks, guys. Thank you Bye-bye. for listening. Bye-bye.